Amen. When you hurt, amen? If you've got children, you surely understand that. If you are married, you understand that. At times, there are just love. If it's real love, if it's genuine love, if it's that love that you have for friends that, that may disappoint you, uh, it, it can hurt. And so this morning, as we embark on part two, we're going to briefly go back to verse one and take uh, the next seven verses. And so let's ask the Lord to speak to us through this amazing passage. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for this church, which loves on me, loves on my family. And God, pray that you'd cause us to grow. Lord, help us to reach out in love. Lord, in our marriages and as we raise our children in our, in our world that we live in and dwell in and have our being, God, would you help us to exemplify this amazing love that's described here in this chapter. And so, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, would you cause it to be life to us? Would you help us to embrace it, Lord? Help us to not shun those things that perhaps this morning we really don't want to hear. Help us to lay hold of the truth and implement it in our lives. We bless you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. And so verse 1 again, though we speak with the tongues of men and of angels. And so if you have this amazing gift to speak every language in the world, including the angelic ones that are spoken in heaven, but have not love, I've become as a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And again, Remember which kind of love is in view here. And though I've drawn distinction between eros, which is physical love, sexual love, and phileo, which is that fellowship that we have as brothers and sisters and uh, within those close relationships that we would call deep friendship, this third kind of love, this, this love that is deeper than those two, and yet in marriage all three parts are absolutely necessary, as I said last week. We, we must have that eros in our marriage. We must have our phileo in our marriage. We're best friends. And above all that, kind of hovering over every other thing in our lives, is this beautiful picture that's laid out. And first, Paul begins with really the negatives. And I think there's a reason for that. And perhaps if I could just give you this thought. It is very much like when you take your car into the shop. The first thing that they do, generally speaking, if there is a problem, is they run diagnostics. Amen? And in running the diagnostics, the first thing that they try and do is find out what is going on that shouldn't be going on. Amen? And so I believe that really is the background here for why the Holy Spirit, writing through the Apostle Paul, first gives us a list of things that love isn't. Because then we can look at our lives and say, wow, I, I'm not being kind. Uh, my long-suffering quotient is kind of low. And so I believe that as we look at this part this morning, we can also flip these things, by the way, and make them into positives. And we can make the positives into negatives because really the lack of these things or, or the implementation thereof gives us a very clear view of what love really is. And so he begins by saying, but if I have not love, I'm nothing. 
can I share with you that you can be in full-time ministry and not have love? Can I share with you that you can even pastor churches and not have love? You can build churches and not have love. You could be a missionary and not have love. You could have all manner of things. That's what's in view here. You could have so much faith that you're capable of moving mountains and yet not possess love. And it misrepresents the Lord. And so what he's really going to lay on us this morning is this. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and I have not love, it profits me nothing for... Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, and it endures all things. And so this amazing chapter that often, quite frankly, is is taken out of context to be some kind of ode to love. Non-Christians even quote this particular chapter in its entirety to define how love is. You'll, You'll see it on posters, you'll see it in magazines, you'll see it quoted as as a near-perfect description, and it is. But remember the context. It's in the context of us living out our faith. It's in the context of us using the giftednesses that God has given us. It's in the context of us living our lives that these words are spoken. It's in really the context of chapter 12. And that's why some of those same things that are in chapter 12 are mentioned here. In other words, there's a comparative portion of this chapter. And what it's really saying is, is even if you had all these spiritual gifts, so much faith that you could move a mountain or two, so much prophetic ability that you could speak amazing words and people would go, oh, he's a prophet. You could teach so well that people would be enthralled by your Ability to preach the word. But if you don't have love, it's just like those sounding brasses. It's an interesting thing. We, we would say it's just like the amplification system. It's just like the speakers in this room. You know, we can crank up the sound in here and your ears will bleed. You, you, you see, what would be coming out of it would be maybe some truth, but if we turned up the volume in such a way that it began to destroy your hearing, it wouldn't do much, would it? That's the picture, the sounding brass that's used here. In the back of ancient amphitheaters, what they would do is they would take a large brass cauldron, they would face them towards the backs of the people who were sitting there, and as the voice was projected from the front, it would resound out of these big brass cauldrons and would be pushed forward. But it didn't really give you all that great a sound. It was kind of tinny. It was kind of irritating. It may have 
regenerated that that message, if you will, but the way it was received after it bounced off that back wall wasn't exactly fruitful in most people's lives. And that's what's in view here. You see, I can be perfectly right. I can tell you in my own life that, that I have taken out Scripture and I have whacked people right between the eyes with it. And it wasn't in love. It was to win an argument. I have in my own life, and I say these things to you to help you understand that none of us are immune. And I'm certainly not immune. We can have the absolute truth, and it really is how we implement it. It is what we do with it. It's how we take it and use it that matters. There have been many times in my own life when I've been completely 100% accurate. But the way I've used that information hasn't been loving. It hasn't been kind. And so I pray we'll hold that as we look at some of these other things in view. Because the love that's in view here is unconditional love. The love that's in view here is love that will take a beating if necessary. The love that's in view here is the love that put Jesus on Calvary's cross, isn't it? That's the kind of love that's being spoken of here. And that's the love that we should operate in. And I like to think of it that way. That's the love I want to operate in. One of the great deciding factors, and I want to share this with you, that I think has impressed upon me that the Lord has used in my life to say, Jeff, it's time that you just focus in on the church is you can be so busy, you can get so many things done, that the thing that you give up, the thing that you stop doing that is so necessary, is you're not loving. And I found myself over the last several years, at times, being less than loving. And not to explain it away, but to take absolute responsibility for it in my own life. You can look at how busy you are, and well, I'm doing this for the Lord, and I'm doing that for the Lord, and, you know, i got to get this done and that done. And as I look at those things in my own life, I say, you know, what evidence is there of love? Did I take the time necessary to make sure that that person understood that at the end of all that I would say, that Jesus loves them and so do I? You see, I've forfeited some of that at times, and... And I want to really speak to this from a, a very deeply personal place this morning. You see, his ultimate gift to you and to me was his love. Amen? It should surprise us to some degree that he first loved us, as I shared with you last week. It should stun you. When you think about God loving you, when I think about God loving me, when I look at my life and I say, God loves me, that actually should be a shock each time I ponder it. And I don't mean the negative shock, I mean the positive shock, like, God loves me. Always God loves me. When I get up in the morning, God loves me. He agapes me with an undying love. He's not mad at me. He's not disappointed. When God thinks of me, He loves me. He doesn't want me to sin. He doesn't necessarily like all of my little quirks and things about me. But above everything else, God loves us. To me, that is staggering to think of. 
It's mind-boggling. Sometimes I can't even comprehend it. It's like, really, Lord, you love me? And you know why you think that. You know why I think that. Because I know me and you know you. Amen? All the stuff that's deep in your heart that maybe no one else on this planet knows, God knows, and He still loves you. He still loves me. When we have those motivations, those things in our lives, the stuff that goes on, just behind the scenes, most people never get it. God gets it, and He loves us anyway. It's awesome. It's amazing. That's why... The only begotten Son of God, Jesus Himself, dying on that cross was the only way to pay that debt of sin. And it is the depth of that love that's in view. It's the love that said from Jesus' lips, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Have you ever thought of this passage in that light? You're going to hear that repeated a few times this morning. Love is patient and love is kind. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Love's not rude. Love doesn't seek its own. Love doesn't keep lists. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What an amazing picture of the love of God. And so it begins with some of these things that are not the marks of love, not the works of love, not the acts of love, not how love behaves would be a good way to look at it. Why? Because think of Jesus on the cross and try and imagine him being rude. Try and imagine him being not long-suffering. Interesting in the language of that particular verse. Love suffers long and is kind. And actually in the original language, the two thoughts are linked together. Love is kind while it's suffering long. You ever thought about if you could grow in that area of love? Oh man, I, I, that's one of those things I look at. Lord, help me to suffer long and be kind while I'm doing it. Because our response oftentimes is, oh, I, look how I'm suffering. You know, man, I'm suffering right through this whole thing and they should appreciate me for suffering. You see, the problem is I'm not kind while I'm long suffering. Sometimes I'm pointed. Sometimes I'm actually mad, even though I'm appearing to be suffering long, being kind. It's been well said that love is actually the central nervous system of the Christian experience, and I believe that's a truth. Because diagnostically, when you can look at your life, you can simply take out this chapter. You want to solve pretty much everything that you'll ever face in marriage that might come up that's going to be a difficulty for you. You can do it with this one chapter. I have found very few things in in a lot of time counseling married couples that I couldn't approach from some specific place using this, this passage. Because it normally does boil down to some of these things that we shouldn't be, and somebody's being those things. 
Somebody's laid hold of something and they've kept a record of it. They've brought a list. They've decided it's better to be right than righteous. You see, facts and acts without love very often are hurtful. Love always gives. Agape always seeks to give. It never takes. In other words, you can look at this and kind of put it the, the head of the page. Self-ish or self-less. And it becomes very clear which two of those things fits all of this that's being spoken to us. Real love is selfless and never selfish. It always considers the other person first, foremost, and last. It, it looks at the end of every conversation and at the beginning of every conversation. It looks at every deed that's done from a very specific place. That's why Paul said, Lord, let me decrease and you increase. That will always produce love. It always brings forth that characteristic that we would assign to God. That's why it says, if I bestow all my gifts to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, you could become a martyr and still be unloving. And it wouldn't draw people to Christ. And that's, that's why it's so amazing when you think about Jesus on the cross. Amen? He was being murdered for me. And there was no grumbling under his breath. He wasn't crying out from the, the cross, God, I can't believe I have to do this for Jeff. You know how wicked he is. How come he couldn't pay for his own sin? Why am I up here? Far from it. Exactly the opposite is true. He asked of his father, he said, if there's any other way, let it be so. But there wasn't. Because if there was some other way and I could figure it out, then it'd be me and not him. And I'd probably figure out some way to mess it up. Amen? You ever tried to think about being Messiah? I'm pretty sure that I couldn't do it. I'd figure out some way to mess it up. There'd be some little thing in there that somebody would be unable to receive whatever it is that I would do. Love always looks at others and ceases to enrich them. That's why Ephesians 4, verse 15, it says that we're to speak the truth in love. You see, we can have the truth and not have the love, and people will miss the truth. Truth can hurt. It can wound. It can be absolutely unhelpful at times. Sometimes we drag out the truth, and we think the truth in and of itself is capable of showing people the love of God, and it's not. The truth must be held in love. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9. But concerning brotherly love, I have no need that I should write you, Paul says, writing to the church at Thessaloniki. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Remember what John said? Chapter 4, 1 John. 
God is love. And so as we look at these things, this diagnostic test, what love does not do, love is long-suffering. Or you can look at it in the negative, it's not impatient. I, I can't tell you how many times I have seen impatient love. And it bears horrible fruit. I myself have engaged in it. I haven't suffered long. I have that place. Maybe you are like me and you have that place. Oh, I'll go that far, but no further. You draw a line in the sand, right, with your love. I'll go this far. As long as he doesn't do this, as long as she doesn't do that, I'll suffer to that point. After that, forget it. The picture is love goes all the way to the end, even if it ends up in my death. That's what's in view. It suffers that long. Guarantee you, all of us, I know I can grow in that area of suffering long, saying, Lord, even if it hurts, let me go that extra mile. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus suffered unto death. And that's our model. And again, not to put a burden on anyone, but to give you a picture of the depth and the height and the breadth of the love that's in view here in this chapter. All the way to the end, if necessary, love suffers. It's not impatient. The word patient here is macrothumai. It it means to be slow to your temper. It means that the last thing you do is go, man, I'm, I've had it. I think we can all grow in that, amen? Getting a little, little bit longer in our temper is what's in view there. Love bears with those annoyances. It bears with weaknesses. It bears with inconveniences. It isn't provoked to lose its temper just like that. It says love is kind, or love is not unkind. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There there was no unkindness ever in Christ. Ever. If you really think about it, he had every reason to not go to the cross. Amen? He did. Jesus had every reason to not go to the cross. You don't believe that. Look around this room. You're part of the reason. You see, we're weak. We're, we're, we're failed. We're flawed. We're faulty. We're sometimes rebellious. We're mean-spirited. We're angry. At times, we are exactly what he does not want us to be. Amen? Even knowing his love. Even having received his grace, we're still like that. So from a practical standpoint... And this is where it rubs us. At times we look at God's love from our point of view instead of his. And we sell God short because we hold his love the way we think it should be. And that's not what he did. When Jesus went to the cross, it was out of pure kindness and total patience. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Love does not envy It says, there's no stored up strong jealousy. That's what envy is. 
stored up strong jealousy. It's somebody has something and you want it, or you think you should have it, but they've got it, and so there's envy. There's a strong jealousy towards that person. That's not love. That's why as we get to the, the positive side next week, we see the wonderful playing out of how this love actually looks. We can't look at someone else's greater gifts or our lesser gifts or something that someone else has or is able to do. I can't tell you how many times in marriage counseling I've had people actually be jealous that someone else has been has gotten away with sin. Well, you know, they got to do it. They hit me like this. They beat me like that. They did this to me. And what they're really saying is, I'm jealous. That's not love. It's not God's love. It's not genuine love. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It does not boast, and it is not proud. Isn't it funny how in our own self-righteousness we boast? We compare ourselves to other people. Can I tell you that this type of love doesn't do that? That's why I believe it goes on to say love doesn't keep a list. Because as human beings, we're prone to do that, aren't we? It's like, here's my stuff. And I'll, I'll list like some of the negative things because I don't want anybody to believe that I don't think I don't have some. So I list some of the negative things, but you got all the positive things. And I can tell you that when I talk to people, and maybe there's something that's happened between two people, maybe in marriage, maybe not, it's just a couple of friends and they've had an argument, almost without exception, they'll bring in their, their lists. He did this. She did that. He said this. He said that. I'm like this. They're like that. That's not love in operation. That's our selfishness. It doesn't mean that those things don't matter, by the way. We need to get to the root of those things so that they can be forgiven and forgotten. But we don't do it by boasting about our own righteousness. We don't go, well, I'm a ten, he's a six. We, we don't do it by being pridefully ignorant of our own failures. Love is not rude. You think about the kindness of Christ on the cross. Man. Talk about restraint. I don't know about you, but my, my rudeness, if and when I have it, almost always comes out in times of duress. That's where it becomes visible in my own life. I'm going through something and I become short and terse and what you would call rude. And the Lord has, has spoken to me and said, Jeff, that's not Jesus. Sure, stole your truck. Maybe they'll get saved. Oh, that's right, Lord. My Bible is on the front seat. You know, you think through all those things that you could say. That's your flesh welling up. That's not the love of the Lord. The love of the Lord is not rude. Furthermore, it's not self-seeking. 
It's not self-seeking. Isn't that just great against your humanness? In other words, you're not the first thing in view. The Lord is. Other people are. We should be in love thinking about how will this affect someone else. What will happen if I say these words? Could the enemy use it? You see, real love thinks of other people before it thinks of ourselves. And that's hard for us. I admit that. I'm sure most of you will too. That's hard for me at times. Because I like me. You know, when I go to a restaurant, I'm just being honest. I really don't think about what somebody else wants to eat. I think about what I want to eat. It's kind of a sign of how we really think at times. And I know that's a simple one, but it's a truthful one. If you think about how you naturally think in your flesh, you're first. Amen? (laughs) I know I am. I'm just being honest. And so it is the love of God that represses that that pushes that back, that says, you know what, I I want that other person to know that because God is in me and Christ in me is my hope of glory and I am a new creation in Christ, that the things that I think are so affected by the love of God that I want them to know that they're first. Wow. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up and if the elders would begin to pass out the elements of communion. You see, these things, as we look at them in this diagnostic test, if you will, you see, now you can kind of assemble some of these things, can't you? I can tell where my love quotient is by how it presents itself because I know what love isn't. And the test lights go on. All of a sudden, you're hooked up to that diagnostic machine, and oh man, there's some rudeness and self-seeking and boasting and pride, and oh my goodness, I'm I'm, I'm envious and I'm not being kind. I'm not long-suffering. Those are problems. There's something broken in the way I love. I need a fill-up. I, my my love tank is has run dry. And praise God that the Lord is able to fill that love quotient back up every time you ask. Family of God, I can't tell you how many times I, I've just I've looked back on things that I've said, or maybe the way I've said them, or even things that I've done. I've gone, Lord, please. And I just need more love for that person, for that situation, for that group of people. I I know that I need that love because I can look back on what happened and go, I was rude. I wasn't kind. I wasn't gentle. I sure wasn't thinking of how they'd receive that. I was thinking about what they did to me. You see, it becomes very easy to see. That Jesus hanging on the cross wouldn't have said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go this far, but no further. He went all the way. I'll let him do this, but I won't let him do that. No, we were able to do anything our hearts desired, and he still loved us. 
loved us enough to hang on that cross. As I thought on some of these things this morning, notice what it says here, the last couple of things that I would just share with you as we're passing out the elements. In the NIV it says, love is not easily angered. Oh, man. Did you have to say that? Did that have to be in there, Lord? Couldn't, you know, and, and we all make our excuses. Well, you know, God gets angry. You ever found yourself saying, you know, God gets angry. You know, I'm righteously indignant. I, I deserve to be like this because I'm being righteously indignant. And God hates stuff, so I need to hate these things too. Can I tell you what's in view here? It says that we're not easily brought to that place of anger. In other words, it puts all the other things, the suffering long and being kind and putting others first, all ahead of being angry. And the anger is only in the righteousness of Christ. And I remember then what Jesus said. After he'd been beaten, after he'd been bruised, after the thorn of crowns was pressed upon his head, after he'd been stabbed in the side, nailed to the cross, after he'd been mocked and spit on and had his beard plucked out, don't you think he had the right to be angry? You ever thought about it? You know, kind of, I, I, I look at that love and I go, how much restraint is that? How much restraint did Jesus show in, in not calling down fire from heaven? How much restraint did God the Father show in not just saying, okay, that's enough. You can't do that to my son anymore. This doesn't work for me anymore. I'll let you go so far, but you can't go that far. That's what's in view. How not easily angered is the love of the Lord. So when you have those things in your marriage or in your friendships and they come up, that's the not easily angered that's in view. It's God's not easily angered. And of course, He's God and we're not. And He understands our weaknesses and faults. And so please don't fall under condemnation. I don't mean it that way at all. But what I do mean for you to have an understanding of what's in view Your love goes all the way to the end, and that's why it says it keeps no record of wrong. What does God do with your sin? They got nailed to the cross, didn't they? What does God do with our sin? He says, I remember it not so far as the east is from the west. I bury it in the depths of the sea. That's what's in view from God's love perspective. It's gone what the cross was about, isn't it? That's what the sacrifice of his broken body and his shed blood was about. I'm not going to remember it anymore. God says, I I don't want to remember it. The blood of my son was enough to erase it. I'm not going to remember it anymore. It's that kind of love. That's crazy love. That's undying love. That's extravagant love. Have you ever thought of that word? It's extravagant love. 
It's love that's beyond your imagining. Think of the most magnificent thing that you can think of and then multiply it times a few billion infinities. I know that doesn't work mathematically, but I don't care. It's beyond our thinking that much love. That's why he doesn't remember it anymore. That's why his blood does what all the thinking in the universe can't do. That's why his sacrifice did what we can't do for ourselves. It's this kind of love lived out in perfection right before us. And that's what we celebrate when we partake of communion. And so what you hold in your hand is just a cracker and some grape juice. But what it represents is the love of God. The love that's being described in this chapter. And I pray you receive that. Embrace it. Seek to live it. Because this changes the world. That's why Paul said you could move mountains and not have love, and it really ultimately is only going to be earth-moving. We want to move heaven and earth. Amen? Let's partake together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for that great love, the love that was poured out on Calvary's cross for us, that you, Jesus, considered it not a robbery, Lord, to go to that cross, that it wasn't uh, a last-ditch effort. It was the plan, Lord, to pour out your love upon us, to give us something that was unlike anything we would have ever known were it not for your sacrifice for us. We thank you for your precious blood. We thank you for your broken body. Lord, we're so in love with you. We pray that that love that you've given us, Lord, would pour out of us. Lord, the world needs what we have. It needs that undying love. It needs that extravagant love. And so, Lord, would you cause us to be vessels of it. Lord, help us to possess it ourselves and live it and give it. And so, Lord, we thank you. We bless you. We praise you, Lord, for your sacrifice for us. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.